Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, we are joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Morning, everyone. Morning, Nigam. And we are also joined by Dr. Sarah Jane Ward. Welcome back. Thanks. Hi, everybody. And our first-time guest, Jim Mitchell, Vice President of API Research and Development at Benuvia Manufacturing, an FDA-registered and DEA-licensed drug manufacturer. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. It's, It's great to have you, Jim. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. For our popular science or popular literature section, we're going to talk about how this recent National Cannabis Legalization Bill gets a bit of a cold shoulder. We'll talk about the psychedelic landscape, a a legal blog on pharma tech, decrim, and other issues. And we'll talk about a recent announcement about Compass Pathway joining forces with King's College London. Um, Is is this sort of therapy and psychedelics coming for the UK? Uh, It's coming sometime and maybe, but more on that later. For our peer-reviewed section, we'll discuss um, the sort of the minor compounds in mushrooms and their relevancy, as well as a novel and practical continuous flow synthesis for CBD and its analogs. And as usual, we'll end with a game. And this week's game will be based on a case report involving an accidental drug exposure where you will have to figure out which drug was involved in the accidental exposure. All right. We'll be right back after this short break. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So Bloomberg.com reports on the U.S. pot legalization bill getting a frosty reception. So the U.S. cannabis industry and consumers and patients of cannabis, uh, who have probably been waiting even longer than the industry itself, have eagerly awaited some sort of action at the federal level. And so now that we have this bill coming through, a Senate Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has seemed to left many folks underwhelmed. Um, Cannabis stocks are going crazy up and down because critics have piled onto this bill from all direction. It's it's no surprise that a piece of government legislation doesn't please everyone, um, especially given a lot of the controversies around cannabis and, and drug use in general. And, you know, you have all sorts of weirdos like Project Sam saying things to confuse people as well as um, unsupported claims. It just, it just seems like there's a general lack of consensus about how to move this forward. We hear people talking about potency caps with no clear, you know, data on how they should do that. Um, and it's, it's said that, you know, this will lead to a lot of good paying jobs um, and a lot of stability. But again, it seems really confusing to me about you know, what the purpose of this bill is. And, and past as it is, 
I personally don't think it'd be that great. So I think what we're looking at is this is just something to get the discussion started and to move it along. Um, and one of the most surprising things for me personally was in this bill was that it actually doesn't change the definition of hemp. So it does regulate cannabis, but it doesn't necessarily regulate cannabinoids. Um, you know, Nigam is, is a long time, you know, studied chemistry of cannabinoids and other products. And, you know, like me, you've worked in and out of the industry and academia. You know, what is, what is your response to this, uh, this legalization bill? Your initial thoughts? Yeah, there's, um, you know, a few things I like and a few things I don't like. So when they're concentrating on the banking, that, that's been a huge issue and that's important. Um, but we see that attached to being able to take these companies onto the public markets based in the United States. So to me, that looks like a little bit more of a financial incentive from the financial or the kind of funding sector itself. Versus some of these other areas, like you said, you know, patients, people, consumers, uh, stuff like that. Um, the so you know th that's you know some good with some bad. And then the thing that you were highlighting, some of the specifics from the article about you know potency caps and these kind of things that could really harm you know the markets that we already have that are thriving, as well as you know patients and consumers that already have an understanding of how to use some of these certain products for what they need. And then we're going to have, you know, sweeping federal changes. And it, it's just, it, it's hard to really conceive that at this moment. So uh, I, I think the, um, there was a quote in the article about, you know, just generically, there's, there's a lot to be done and this isn't perfect, but it's a start. It's positive to see it. So I, I kind of am in line with that sentiment. Absolutely. You know, overall, it is positive. And, you know, what would be perfect in the cannabis industry is when something positive happens is to criticize the heck out of it, right? <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, Jim, I kind of want, you know, as you know, you work in this other side of cannabinoids and drugs, which is through federal programs like, you know, DEA licensing, FDA registered, which is a bit different than, you know, if you're a vertically integrated operator producing cannabinoids. And so, you know, the FDA, for example, recognizes like the distinction between corn and fructose, crude oil, hydrocarbons, coffee, caffeine. But yet we see, you know, THC and CBD are byproducts of, you know, the same plant. But it seems like, you know, and they're sought after for their effects, but this bill doesn't seem to like take a scientific approach to this. Um, you know, I guess as someone who has to deal a lot with federal rules around individual compounds, um, do you see this as something that will help the bill pass or inhibit it? This sort of lack of individual cannabinoid regulation or this sort of like non-scientific based approach. Um, and again, you can just use it as a prompt. You don't have to answer that question directly. So, so my reading of it is that it's aimed more towards the recreational space and trying to get um, you know, marijuana itself either decriminalized or, or, or legalized. Um, doesn't necessarily have any bearing on what we do um, in the FDA regulation space. For the DEA space, yeah, absolutely. Um, when CBD was scheduled, um, we were developing CBD oral solutions for treatment of pediatric indications, right? So if you're trying to get these 
investigative formulations out to clinicians who aren't necessarily, you know, um, large companies, they're mom and pop doctors who signed up for a clinical trial. You know, they have to have all the DEA bells and whistles. They have to have a safe, they have to have an alarm system. It's scheduled and a lot of people can't, um, can't front that. So they, they can't forward the science. Um, so I think it would be nice to have specifically, because even now today, specifically individual cannabinoids aren't descheduled. I think on the back burner, the DEA has said, you know, CBD is, as long as it's THC compliant, you know, we're not going to come after you, but there's nothing, you know, written in writing that says hundred percent. Um, this is the way it is, especially for the synthetic CBD. Yeah, absolutely. And that always makes me nervous when a, a law enforcement officer is like, yeah, it's fine. Just, uh, you can have this scheduled drug. Just take it. Take as much as you want. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Sarah, I, I want to get your thoughts on this. You know, as a, as a drug abuse researcher, um, you know, I think you might have some concerns here. And one of the things that I wonder if, if the best approach here is they talk about potency caps, they talk about limits on marketing of these products, but I didn't see anything really on labeling standards, packaging standards, like thou shall not put your cannabis in a rainbow tinfoil 3D package. Um, you know, they said they focus on the flavoring of the products when, you know, I think about uh, the actual packaging and labeling being accuracy and, and making sure the products are accurately weighed and have accurate potency because that can lead to a type of abuse. But there also seemed to be nothing really here about education, nothing concrete about we're going to put money into education programs because, you know, I, I can't imagine, okay, if I was, you know, when I was in school and, and you know, before, well, back when I was just a wee scientist, um, I can't imagine being in high school or grade school and having cannabis legalized. It'd be a very confusing time because that's the same time that police officers are saying, uh, you know, we use drugs when we were, when we were your age. Now you don't do it. Um, and it's like, what? Um, so it's a very confusing time, but you know, I guess, could you speak to the importance of uh, where should this be focusing to minimize risk, or at least an area here that you think the bill could be reshaped to focus on? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And as you know, you know, talking to um, children and adults, anybody in the community who will listen about substance use disorders and, and cannabis and how the two relate, you know, something that I'm really passionate about, spend a lot of time doing and thinking about. And as, as states have legalized medical and then recreational, there is, you know, an even bigger need to talk to people about how does legalization equate to safety and how can how can we talk to our kids about something that's now becoming legal? Is that all of a sudden make it you know, safer. And they did mention in the article something about the importance of, you know, with legalization, the increase in, um, you know, adolescent use and, and perspectives. So I do think that it's, it's you know, the, the perfect place to implement educational programs. Um, I think, you know, one of the challenges, and I think that you've all probably touched upon this with this article and it's it's so different you know I, I watch a lot of news and you know I'm interested in following politics and you know, hear about these monstrous bills trying to pass and 
everybody sneaks in a part that's important to them and then everybody likes their part and doesn't like somebody else's part. It's interesting how it's put into a different perspective when it's your, you know, area of interest. And my first thought was, why why are you trying to put all of these different pieces into one bill? And I think, you know, Nigam touched on that as well. And and as did you, Jehan, are we talking about legalization? Are we talking about rescheduling? Are we talking about safety? Are we talking about education? So I, I don't, and again, I, I remember that jingle about how a bill becomes a law. Yeah. <laughs> we all learned in, in grade school. It seemed, to, yeah, it seemed <laughs> to leave out the most important part, which was the briefcase full of money. But that's... Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's yeah, absolutely, and and sometimes it gets confusing as when these things really get in the spot national spotlight, you know, because smart approaches to marijuana, uh, you know, Project Sam, you know, it, it turns out that they actually are pushing for decriminalization rather than full legalization. And to me, uh, you know, one, this is a great opportunity for people who love to explain the difference of decriminalization and legalization, just talk all day, but. I also feel like we have this opportunity for legalization and regulating things and enforcing laws. And, and here's this group saying they're smarter than everyone saying, let's just decrim it and just let, let it just go. And it's like, that's not the best thing for public health. That's not the best thing for education. That's not the best thing for consumers to make informed decisions is just not to enforce anything. I mean, you know, Jim, as you kind of talked about, like, what's what it's done to like CBD and, and that market. Um, you know, you have, if you sell CBD in a, as a cannabis product, it has to follow label labeling and packaging standards. If you don't, if you sell it online, it could be packaged and labeled any old way you want. It could be in a you know a clear plastic bag with a twist tie, <laughs> shipped as biomass. You know, it's like it's all over the place from unregulated sources. Um, yeah. So, uh, Sarah, did you want to follow up? Yeah, I just wanted to add one other thing. You know, I thought. Something that caught my eye right away in the beginning of the article was some people complaining, well, it doesn't address potency limits or it doesn't address driving um, you know, issues, which are all important. And then the follow-up, I don't remember if it was actually Schumer's response or someone else's, that, you know, one it provides funding to research it. And I think all of us know that we don't yet have the answers. I mean, the 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 comp the complexities of the driving issues and how to test. There's lots of really smart people coming up with innovative and, you know, more appropriate and accurate ways to figure that out. We still have labs figuring out what do we think safe limits are. Then we have other groups that are trying to figure out, well, how do we accurately determine those amounts if somebody's, you know, pulled over. And so in some ways, I think in this bill, people want answers to be put in place that we still don't have the answers to, you know? So, so I'm not as um, upset that there aren't specifics because I know for a lot of these things, it's important to acknowledge all of those issues, but we, we don't have all the answers. And I guess quickly, the other thing I would say is with this whole, well, it's better to get something passed and get it on the books and then we'll go from there. But is that true if what goes on the books is wildly inaccurate or inappropriate and then we have to fight to change it? And I'm not I'm not sure of the answer to that question. 
Absolutely. And I think that's always a concern. And sometimes the answers may not be convenient. And and you know, I worry about the DUI thing that we might go down the wrong like path on that because maybe it's not about quantifying blood levels. Maybe it's some other aspect. And uh, again, I I you know, my biases have already published on approaches to handling the cannabis DUI issue. And it's just been to say, you know what, it doesn't matter why you're swerving and why you're incoherent. If you can be objectively measured as impaired, any sort of drug testing is like a secondary or tertiary confirmation providing like a plausible mechanism of why you were impaired. But again, if you can't follow a a light, a horizontal gaze, and you can't walk a straight line or, or other measures of impairment, you know, then you fail. And, and then again, but that's not a great answer for people who <laughs> want to, you want a specific test for something. But, you know, uh, so I worry about some of these things where we're going to be, could be chasing our tail for a really long time when there might be some solutions out there if we don't treat cannabis as this like special, unique, radioactive poison, <laughs> just like as, as any other product with objective standards. Um, you know, and, and, and speaking of like science and technology and, and applying that to a new field, I want to transition to our story from the Harris Bricken blog. Um, this is on the psychedelic landscape, pharma tech, decrim, and other. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with this blog, check out the show notes. They've been writing about psychedelics um, for like three years covering, you know, like the FDA, Compass 360, Pathway to Psilocybin Formulation Patent. But they go into a little bit of a summary about the pharma space and all the some of the drugs and different phases of trials from phase one and two to three, which is really amazing. The technology space, these delivery systems, these dose modulation systems, as well as digital therapeutics, biometric protocols. They talk about the decriminalization space, as well as they have a section on the blog called Other, which um, discusses all these opportunities. Um, you know, Jim, I wanted to go to you and get kind of your feelings about this sort of announcement. I mean, is this, uh, should we be really excited about what they're outlining in this blog? I mean, you as a, as a licensed drug manufacturer, it must be great to see sort of this stuff going through traditional pathways for regulatory approval, like, you know, phase one, two, and three clinical studies, um, yeah, I just want to say, like, what sort of jumps out at, out at you as being really exciting from the pharma, the tech, the decrim, or is there another aspect to the psychedelics renaissance we're in, the third psychedelics renaissance? Yeah. No, I think it, I think it's all of the above. Um, so you start with you're going to have MDMA within the next two or three years be the first officially approved um, intactogen, entheogen, psychedelic molecule, whatever you want to classify it, um, or PTSD treatment, right, in combination with talk therapy. And, and that is massive because that goes straight to veterans and it goes straight to the audience that previously were poo-pooing on all of these molecules um, and, you know, issuing their use and their uh, essentially kind of, you know, halting their advancement or investigation into the clinic. And now you start looking at, you know, these are all major disorders, right? Like depression, anxiety, um, PTSD. Now that we're trying to kind of peel back the the curtain and take a look at um, consciousness itself 
and have access to these molecules, we find that, you know, yeah, they're, they can be efficacious. And, and not just in a kind of, well, well, maybe there's a two sigma effect there. It definitely, at least from the testimonial of the subjects and the patients that have undergone, it definitely is life altering. Absolutely. Um, th- thank you, Jim. Uh, Nigam, you know, we've been working together um, in the psychedelic space and we've had to do some cool things like reviewing pitch decks and doing due diligence. And, um, you know, I just wanted to get kind of your response to this, having kind of seen the behind the scenes, you know, getting to talk to the wizard behind the curtain, as it were, about this space. And, you know, I got to imagine you must be pretty excited about the pharma development or is there a particular like technology, you know, aspect or technological development that you're interested in? Yeah, I I think uh, all of the above, the answer is yes, but I can uh, share some specifics. So uh, on one hand, um, Jehan, you're right with with my background as a chemist and and my interest in the translational uh, process from bench to to bedside, excuse me. Uh, I, I am really excited tracking all this. I'm going to share a few details about uh, some of the specifics on the clinical trials in a moment. Uh, but I am also closely tracking what's going on in Oregon and what's going on in other uh, locations that are pursuing it in the non-FDA uh, pipeline route. Um, the thing that I wanted to share some specifics was um, there's this great tool that we've talked about on the show before. Uh, this website, Psilocybin Alpha, and they actually have several trackers. They have a patent tracker, they have a clinical trial tracker, they just put up the decriminalization tracker, um, and uh, Graham Pechenek, who's been a big part of this, actually uh, is uh, has been on the show and, and is part of the kind of the HLI group here. So, anyways, um, should, I'm just should, rattle. Should, should we be paranoid that they're tracking all these things about psychedelics? Yeah, you know, I think I don't think so. I think I passed it. You know, I think when the when the FDA gave the breakthrough status, I personally got over it over the paranoia. But maybe I don't know. You know, I don't know if everyone did. So, so um, you're saying uh, FDA approval can cure some forms of paranoia? I like it. I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna read a list of a bunch of companies that aren't paranoid and are doing clinical trials. So, um, Perfect. I'm just gonna just. Just for some, uh, you know, extra info on, on the article that we're posting, and, and maybe we should post this link to the tracker on the episode too. So, absolutely, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll post that for for the audience. So let me just rattle a couple of these off to kind of keep the conversation going. So the furthest along the phase three clinical trial is with Maps. Maps also has several phase two in process. Um, some other companies in phase two right now are Compass, which we've discussed a decent amount on the show, MindMed. Uh, Celos Therapeutics, Awaken, uh, Cybin, uh, Demrx, Seleucus, Filament Health, uh, and, and there's some others. Uh, and then going down to phase one, you got a few more companies in there. MindMed has a lot, Perception Neuroscience, Beckley SciTech, Diamond Therapeutics, and the list goes on, right? So, um, oh, shout out Journey Collabs. They're, they got a, a phase one on mescaline going on. I, I think that's the only one on mescaline. So anyways, um, yeah, I mean, g- generally excited. Uh, this is great. Now, one kind of commentary I'll give is that not all of these are going to make it. And not all of these that make it are going to be 
super useful drug in a practical application. So I think the excitement of seeing psychedelics get to this place where they can be studied and understood and uh, trialed safely in human populations, that part's incredible. But I think we do need to be just aware that, you know, hype is hype and, and we got to not go too fast. We need to treat the right. process appropriately. So, Absolutely. Dude. But I mean, one of the things here in the, um, the other section is they talk about, um, you know, trying to get clearance for a Hollywood film to document the use of drugs like MDMA. And, you know, I think it, it's, I, I wonder how, you know, doing a big Hollywood production about MDMA, for example, or even a psilocybin treatment before we have like, let's just say concrete data, concrete approved products that are actually proven effective, how that might shade public perception. Uh, Cause you don't want to put out like the MDMA, you know, movie that's equivalent to reefer madness and then like affect a generation's thinking. Um, and so Sarah, I kind of wanted to, to toss this to you in terms of, you know, as a basic researcher who's starting to look at, you know, the intersection of all these things, all these different drugs, cannabinoids, psychedelics, and trying to just wrap your head around, um, you know, are they moving too fast? Are there, are there still basic questions we should ask? Because, you know, one thing that's really missing from this article is just some basic research. Like, I don't see much here about, you know, exploring mechanisms of action. It's like, Hey, we got it all figured out. You know, people hallucinate when they take these things. Um, but it seems like there could be a lot of like neuroscience research to be done. There could be a lot of just observational work about public perception, um, as well as I'm just thinking like chronic long-term use of any of these psychedelic products on organs and, and their health. I, am I am I getting too paranoid about <laughs> this stuff? Um, is it just wishful basic science thinking? Um, yeah, just kind of your response to this Harris Bricken uh, psychedelic blog. Yeah, that's a great way that you put that question to me, Jehan, because in in some ways, I feel like it's so opposite of my experiences as a cannabinoid researcher, where there are mountains and mountains of basic science research. And we as basic scientists are like, where are the clinical studies? So I had this weird thought when I read the beginning of this article. I had this weird envy where I wish that cannabis history could disappear. And I, I you know, I, I apologize for all the people who are cringing right now as I say that, but it's like, I'm sort of envious of this fresh start. Like, I would love an article to say, here are some molecules and list them, THC, CBD, CBG, and there are 28 clinical trials to look at whether these molecules do these things clinically. Whereas I feel instead it's cannabis, 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 and it talks about thousands of years of anecdotal yeah. stories <laughs> they talk about that edible that's last for a thousand years and it's just <laughs> we're yeah, still so stuck in the first cannabis renaissance meanwhile psychedelics is like three I, right yeah yeah and i don't i'm having a hard time even do sort of parsing out my feelings about it um intelligibly but what i would like 
the three of you to do is write a compare and contrast essay <laughs> that starts with what this article says about psychedelic molecules and how does that line up with how cannabis, how cannabinoids, see, I did it already myself, how cannabinoid molecules are matched up. Like, is it super similar? Is it wildly different? Why am I jealous when I read this article where I know there there are mountains of, there's mountains of research going on with cannabinoids, but something felt more distilled if I can use that yeah, term. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And for me, you know, I feel like there's a wealth of information about the toxicology of cannabinoids. Like this basic research, you could spend your whole life reading tens of thousands of papers about, you know, every type of brain cell, every type of organ, cannabinoids compared to all this thing, really put through the ringer and some people look at that and think like, oh, there's all this drug abuse research about cannabinoids. They must be bad all the time. But it's really like we've explored the risks, I feel like, to the limits of basic research in a lot of ways. And um, not that there isn't more to learn, but with psychedelics, like, uh, you know, I don't, I've never seen, like, for example, I've never seen a study where a mouse is given psilocybin and put on a ring test and compared to a bunch of other drugs. Like cannabinoids have been compared to caffeine, steroids, amphetamines, all this stuff. And they run them through these tests to see how they do in mazes and all, all these types of things that just don't seem to be there for psychedelics. And there's part of me that wonders, like, are the, is, is there something that they're hiding from us? Like, they don't want us to know that there's this really vulnerable part of the brain that psychedelics interact with. So let's just not publish that. Let's just jump to clinical studies. Or is all that research already done and it's just not publicly available? And it's really... It is a little confusing, I think, um, because I feel like they got to skip the line. Like cannabinoids are still waiting outside the club, being like, I got a nice shirt on, I got good shoes, I did all like the basic stuff. Why am I not getting in the club? And psychedelics just like walk right in there with dreadlocks and like a tie-dye shirt. They're like, what's going on? Um, so I do (laughs) thanks, Jeff. (laughs) You're free to use it. Can I quickly add the I wrote down the sentence that Nigam said. They won't be drugs in a practical application. I think that's something that Nigam said. And again, that was another jealousy issue with me. It's like, I want people to be putting cannabinoids through these clinical trials without the drug development aspect. Like, is that another big difference? Like, let's study MDMA in clinical trials for science's sake, not because I can patent a drug and make millions of dollars. Am I being like really naive and maybe missing Nigam's point a bit, but that was something else that was like, that, that struck me again about these psychedelic molecules in clinical trials. Is that a little different from the drug development pharma world of cannabinoids right now? Does that make sense? Well, I, oh, I think a hundred percent. I mean, you have a public benefit corporation uh, funding, um, MDMA going in getting, getting into approval. You would you would never see that in, in, a, in a traditional pharma model. Oh, I take that back. You would almost never see that. There's another um, there's another company called Flow Corporation. Um, they have a public benefit facing 
portion of them, and they're involved in in onshoring uh, U.S. API manufacturing, um, cheaper, better, faster, mainly by continuous or process intensification, and they're they're committed to um, kind of ameliorating the the drug shortage. Um, but they're a public benefit corporation to some degree as well. Excellent. Um, any final thoughts before we move on to our next article? Because I see a transition. Um, because we're talking about you know global kind of issues, a thirty thousand foot view about the landscape. Now I want to zoom in to uh, a specific example that we might be able to talk about. And this comes from uh, Globe Newswire has announced that Compass Pathways. Um, I guess if you're a fan of them, you cheer here or you boo if you're not, <laughs> uh, has been collaborating for years uh, with an NHS uh, trust, a foundation trust called SLAM. Um, and they've just signed a multi-year memorandum of understanding aimed at advancing research and the development of new models for the, quote, mental health care clinic of the future in the UK, um, which also involves focusing on depression, PTSD, anorexia, training therapists and therapy, and building state-of-the-art facilities for research with groups like um, the King's College of London and their Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience. So this uh, this sounds great. Psychedelic therapy for the UK coming sometime, and maybe. And so I, I wonder, is this a meaningful partnership, or is this just window dressing? Is there no point in asking because we'll get no reply because it's pretty vacant? And why go through all this investment for years and years and years to develop new patented therapies when most people would probably benefit from a holiday in the sun? And that will about do it for my sex pistols puns. Uh, God save the queen. Uh, <laughs> as, as, a, as a fellow uh, fan of um, you know British music, Sarah, um, I, I want to give you the first crack at this announcement. You know, sometimes I hear these and I think, oh, great, uh, they're going to build new facilities. We'll have, a, we'll have something beneficial in 10 to 20 years. Or is this really going to fast track stuff? Because again, training of therapists seems really important, focusing on specific conditions. I mean, there's elements here that speak to specific focused research, but also this just seems like, you know, one more thing that a big company is doing. And, you know, it, I guess I'm trying to figure out how excited should I be? Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's promising. Results, the initial results are promising. All right. right. Uh, yeah, no, again, I think it's, you know, my, the thoughts I expressed in the first two articles are sort of like a, you know, amalgamation of all of these uh, articles that we're discussing today. And I, you know, I had sort of the same feelings arise from reading this as the last one um where it's like well why don't we have that for cannabis and then i remembered well we sort of do right i mean we you know there are some major institutions in the united states and certainly in in canada where you know where these kinds of things are happening so again i i want a a a big comparison chart on the wall of how this is similar and different with how institutions and companies are looking at cannabinoid research. But I, th I think it's, I think it's super cool. Yeah. Sarah, I think that would be such a benefit. You know, there's a couple of things like that, like a sort of a global or national 
database where you could look at all the centers involved in this and what they're doing. And, and I was just, I was encountering this the other day with like education and training in these spaces. I'm like, gosh, there's no like central place to just look up both third-party, private, for-profit training institutes in these places and universities, colleges, and other institutes that have programs, certificates, classes. Like It's, it's all kind of like who's paid the most for search engine optimization. <laughs> That's how you kind of find out about this stuff. Um, you know, uh, you know, Jim, I want to jump to you. You know, in response to this article, you know, it does really seem like this could hit light speed on some development. And, you know, I got to wonder, <clears throat> do you see, you know, the UK as a potential hub for psychedelic research, or do you think it's trying to catch up with the US? You know, think about the last article, all that stuff that's in the FDA, the gold standard of the world for drug safety. Uh, and now the UK is like, oh, we can't, you know, we got to show those colonies what's up. We're going to, you know, start our own center here. Uh, so yeah, just sort of your response to the article. Yeah, no, I think you're going to see this everywhere. This kind of public-private partnership wherever um, you have the ability to kind of advance the amelioration of human suffering, kind of get these out there. If you look at what people are already starting to do right now as far as building up the clinic space in anticipation of these approvals, training therapists um, for the first time. I mean, you've got popular literature out there um, kind of getting the, the public ready. Michael, Michael Pollan's book um, recently that came out, How to Change Your Mind, that, that, was, that was huge. To the audience that he was speaking, um, no, one, no one's ever done that before. So I think you're going to start seeing um, people playing nice. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, far, traditional pharmaceutical companies playing nice um, and, and going out and really kind of seeing, you know, hey, we, have a, we have a very real opportunity to change people's lives for the better. Let's go ahead and, uh, you know, let's do that. Absolutely, Jim. And I think that that's such an interesting aspect. It gives, maybe, you know, psychedelics is giving a lot of pharma type companies the opportunity to play nice because it's a different environment. Um, and, and that's really interesting. And I like the fact that you brought up Michael Pollan and you know, he gets some criticism from different groups. Um, but I think, you know, as a, is he almost like a almost a late sixty year old white guy talking about taking psychedelics? I think he's going to open the door for us to hear from a lot more voices about psychedelics, psychedelic use, um, because he's sort of like created this version of it that's palatable for the masses to start to understand and approach the topic, and which I think makes people more open to hearing from indigenous people about. Uh, psychedelic, psychedelic use, it's traditional use and things like that. Um, so, but yeah, I, I like the idea of playing nice. I definitely think, you know, Michael Pollan has been a psychedelic <laughs> diplomat in, in a number of ways to bridge some gaps. Um, but, you know, Nigam, I want to get your response, um, you know, to this. We've talked about Compass for like the last year on this podcast. Um, I'm personally, you know, I know I make a lot of jokes, but I think I love seeing announcements like these because I just think of all the, you know, the PhD programs that could happen from this, all the students who could get trained in the latest research. Um, and just like, you know, being able to see sort of a directed focus on this, you know, like we're going to study these three areas, PTSD, anorexia, depression. Uh, I, but I don't know if you're as excited as we are. So I think I, I'm seeing both sides of it. Um, Jayhan, I, I kind of, it's funny that you said that because I, I literally was going to say the same thing. Huge benefit here is we're going to get a lot more 
qualified fundamental researchers, young people, young people who are interested in this stuff on a scientific level are going to have this better um, avenue to, to go through to, to get to that level, right? Which is something that, you know, we, we all made it here, but the, our path wasn't so straightforward as, oh, I'm going to join the PhD program at Imperial College in London for psilocybin studies or whatever, right? So, um, and uh, for the listener, everyone who had a big smile on their face, just right there. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so that, that I'm, I'm really into the, the other side of it is that and we've talked about this dynamic before these company partnerships with universities, right? So the university is where the fundamental research is taking place. But when a company, a billion dollar company comes in and, and partners, how do you maintain the objectivity? On one side, you're saying there's like a benefit you can like target. So now you have a funded center to do fundamental research on, you know, condition X or molecule Y or whatever. And that's good. But then how do you control? I, I smell what you're cooking. Yeah, I'm kind of curious I, what Sarah might say about it. Yeah. Sarah swims around in this all day. Yeah. Right? So Sarah, if I, if I can... Um, sort of add a few peppers to the gumbo there, Nigam. You know, one of the things I I love love about academic research versus doing stuff for private companies, which I've done both in my uh, career, is that in academic settings, you can run an experiment. You'd be like, oh, that was interesting. I'm going to try it this way. And then you're like off on this tangent, potentially finding new applications for stuff that's not directly related on what you started off with. Like, Think of the discovery of green fluorescence protein. That was not like, we're going to discover this biological tag. That was just like, a, oh, that's interesting. Let me explore this avenue. And so, you know, I don't know if, Sarah, you want to comment on like, you know, if, you know, that old saying like uh, someone's out in the street and they lost a contact lens and they're looking under a street light and someone asked where you lost it. And they said, oh, I lost it over there, but I'm looking here because this is where the light is, <laughs> you know? Um, are you worried yeah, about I that? No, I guess I would say that, you know, as a academic researcher, um, try to be really careful with my words here. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but unfortunately-ish, um, the research that, it, you know, the way research is done at academic institutions is through funding to look at something very specific. And even though the funding might be from the NIH, which is where the majority of funding comes from for academic institutions, you know, we spend years developing a very specific research question to develop a grant that gets peer reviewed, um, you know, inspected through a microscope if that very 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 specific well thought out idea gets funded we are held to studying that uh it is true that if i find something serendipitously i can pursue that but i'm gonna have to do the same thing to go on that tangent Mm. get funding um so i don't see as many differences our research right now is almost always targeted. You know, I don't get to come into the lab and say, oh, you know, I dreamed up this really cool idea last night. 
let's look at this and spend lots of money. Um, so I don't, <laughs> see, you know, I don't see as much of a difference. My, I've been fund, I've been funded by industry, by yeah. uh, NIH, Department of Defense. It's not that dissimilar. I would okay, say. I, I got you, Sarah. You know, it it's almost sounds like in some ways it'd be a relief to get a bunch of money, if, even if it's from a private sector, to study a focused topic because then you can just zero in and generate a bunch of focused data. Like, you know, I, I, I can definitely see that. And so, you know, we're not so much worried about scientists and researchers losing their objectivity because companies are coming. If anything, the you know, the, the grant landscape has become even more competitive recently. And so I guess you're saying researchers are ready for this type of challenge because again, they've been working in an ever more competing environment for NIH funds. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. All right. Final comments on this segment of the show going once going twice sold. Uh, All right, listener, we'll be right back with the peer-reviewed portion of our show where we'll talk about uh, some tryptamines found in hallucinogenic mushrooms as well as a novel continuous flow chemical synthesis of cannabidiol and its analogs. we're back. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about the peer-reviewed science articles. So our first article comes from the Journal of Natural Products and is about the synthesis of natural products. Uh, The article is on the synthesis and biological evaluation of tryptamines found in hallucinogenic mushrooms. These are the sort of entourage compounds of mushrooms. So the norbeocystin, baocystin, norcelosin, and aerogenasin, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, But this article sort of covers a general synthetic method to produce and assess these uh, products in psilocybin mushrooms. Now there's over, I think like a hundred types of psilocybin producing mushrooms. And some of them are associated, some of these varietals are associated with differential effects. Like some are associated with causing muscle weakness, others aren't. With the consistent factor being the presence of psilocybin, perhaps the contribution to subjective effects is from these minor compounds. But there's been generally a lack of availability of um, you know, these minor compounds, as they say, in mushrooms. So, you know, Jim, I want to jump to you, um, you know, talking about this sort of article just to kind of get your thoughts and from a 30,000 foot view, you know, why should the listener care about, you know, synthesis and evaluation of minor compounds from mushrooms? Oh gosh. Well, after living in the um, cannabinoid space, the cannabinoid miners for years, I think you look at the endocannabinoid system and you see, it's not just a single receptor system. It's a modulatory system. That's got multiple different levers. All of the psychedelics based on the tryptamine scaffolding are all active at variety of the, um, the serotonin receptor subtypes. So it may be the exact same thing. 
when you're talking about affecting consciousness. Oh. Um, I mean, that's kind of a loaded term, affecting consciousness, whatever, whatever that means. So number one, being able to synthesize them and characterize them. Number two, they're all varying states of ionization and log P. Um, right. So you have psilocybin. Um, it's not really the causative agent, right? Psilocin is that, that phosphate group's gone immediately. So you've got a combination of being able to target different receptors, and then you've got a, a druggable molecule, right? So you can tailor the ionic sphere of the molecule. Um, and this isn't even talking about putting prodrug appendages on it. That together with formulations, I think you've got a, a multifaceted handle on how to get these things in to begin with and then targeted where you'd like them to be. And we've, we, we really haven't even started with, with all the minor um, mushroom compounds. Uh, you know, f- fascinating. So, um, you know, what I'm hearing is there's a lot to learn about just the chemistry of these products as, you know, how are, um, you know, when we consume psilocin, you know, it turns into psilocybin in the body. Is that, is that the right A to B transformation or is it the other way around? Other way around. <laughs> other way around. All right. So, you know, I think there, there you go. Um, you know, for the listener, you just learned something, I hope. Uh, you know, Nigam, as, as a chemist, uh, I'd love to get your response to this article. I mean, you're familiar with the breadth of interest in tryptamines, yet, you know, everyone seems to be exploring all these synthetic tryptamines that don't occur in nature, like, you know, in T-Call, Sasha Shulgin's book. But here we have a bunch of naturally occurring ones from, you know, 100 or so species of magic mushrooms, yet they haven't been explored. Um, Sounds like there could be a fourth (laughs) renaissance waiting for the psychedelic uh, research movement. Yeah, totally. So um, there's a few uh, comments I'll make. One is that this whole thing of purifying minor compounds from a natural source versus synthesis. So uh, one of the points the paper makes and the gym was making is that it's really a pain. I mean, if you think maybe it's 0.1% or 0.01 or 0.001% of the dry mass of a mushroom may be theocysteine or maybe aruginathan. So that's from a natural product purification point of view, that's a lot of labor and a lot of inefficiency to even handle 10 or 15 or 20 milligrams of this compound to do a standard chemical characterization. And then, okay, you want to do receptor studies, you want to do animal studies, you want to do, um, you know, uh, PK and PD studies. So you really just need more. So the outlining these synthetic routes uh, makes a lot of sense on a research level and later for a therapeutic level makes a lot of sense. Now, also, uh, there is another route where you can potentially alter the genetic makeup of the mushrooms um, to produce more of minor compounds that are of interest. If you really find something that's good and you're chasing it through the natural route in, in, a, in abundance, then, then that's cool. But all these things take time. So just to study it, just understand it. Synthesis is super important. Um, one other comment I'll make too is that, you know, they examined, this is kind of a funny thing I'm going to say, they examined the major known minor compounds, <laughs> right? So... <laughs> So, but my, my question is, what other, you know, alkaloids are there in 
psilocybin-containing mushrooms. Yeah. Like or what, are the, what are the minor, minor compounds? Not the major, minor yeah. compounds, right? And Yeah, you know, this thing, it's like uh, in, in cannabinoids, it's like, what do you guys like better? Do you like rare cannabinoids or do you like minor cannabinoids? And what's the difference? What does it mean? So maybe it's like, maybe the minors are the minors and the rare are the minor minors. How about, how anyway, about the, the, minor, the minor cannabinoids are the ones that have been known to exist for less than 18 years? And then <laughs> <laughs> after that point, they become rare cannabinoids. That's funny. Oh I knew it just came out the funny. other day, actually. <laughs> yeah, that seems like they're yeah. discovering them all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, yeah. <laughs> so, hey, you know, just, uh, I was go just going to, um, yeah, sorry, just to wrap the point. So, what I was saying is that this is like a great start and it's important. And we already said why it's important, but for further investigation and even like lesser abundant compounds or lesser known ones, the synthetic route for the study is going to be really important. The, uh, the last thing that I was just going to hit on is, uh, the result was really interesting. Um, them finding that essentially, uh, the two compounds that were, um, most likely to have a psychoactive effect, um, actually in their um studies didn't show that and there there was a a couple reasons one uh you know maybe they didn't pass the blood brain barrier or uh they're just getting metabolized um before they can even get there so um but at the same time so like the, the basically the end result is is saying that these miners don't seem to have a an an additive uh psychedelic effect but mm. uh yet still um the the you know mm. entourage effect of the entirety of eating a uh there yet still there seems to be some effect of right. eating a mushroom versus taking one single substance so i guess it's like the findings of the paper my big takeaway after reading this was wow, okay, there's 10 more studies to do now. There's 10 more papers to write. It it really seemed like a great branching off point. Yeah, absolutely. And just because, um, you know, one of the the compounds don't interact with, you know, the right serotonin receptor that triggers, um, you know, the psychedelic experience, as it were, doesn't mean it can't have some effect modulating that subjective experience. Just because it doesn't cause impairment or intoxication or euphoria doesn't mean it can't modulate one, that pathway one, in some way. Totally. And one really interesting uh, uh, theory that they outlined in the paper, too, was that, um, and, and to clarify uh, the two, and I'll rattle off the names here in a sec, uh, to clarify these two compounds, they did say that there should be activity at uh, 5-HT2A, but uh, they, as I was mentioning, like they weren't really getting there because they were being metabolized or they were being, or they weren't passing blood-brain barrier effectively. Mm. But Jehan, there was this other interesting concept where they were saying that simply by being present and by being metabolized, they were basically offering competition for the uh, monoamine oxidase, allowing mm-hmm. the psilocybin itself, or the or excuse the psilocin itself, to have a longer-lasting effect. So. It, it's a modulation in a different way, right? right. So they're the pawns of the psychedelic chessboard. They kind of get sacrificed <laughs> for the other pieces. Um, yeah, that that's actually you know a very interesting aspect because they are structurally related, so they would be competing yep. at active sites. Um, yep, and great yeah, point. Yeah. So 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just, uh, sorry, I'm just scanning through this. Norsalosin is, it's uh, Norsalosin and Baocysteine, I believe, are the two that they compared. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Sarah, um, if you could wave a magic wand and, and explore any of these compounds further, now, now, of course, I'd welcome your critical thoughts on their, you know, <laughs> dose response curves, but, or concentration response curves, but, um, you know, if you could take one of these compounds of these miners into animal studies, of, sorry, these major miners, nor baocystin or baocystin or nor psilocin, is there one that just kind of like for any sort of reason jumps out at you saying, you know, this would be interesting to test um, with another drug or in a model? Um, was something that jumps out at you that you just love to <laughs> put in a rat model of a disease or something? Well, what would jump out at me is not those. And the reason is, and this goes back to the entourage mm-hmm. effect and cannabinoids, and I'm going to channel my inner Dr. Russo. Um, you know, the, the, the notion <laughs> behind the entourage effect is that compounds that do something different act synergistically with THC, if you're talking about cannabis, to produce a certain effect. And in entourage kind of research in animals, we're testing for something we called synergy. Um, and so we're trying to determine, do two molecules or more than two molecules act additively so they just stack on top of one another? Do they act synergistically so that they are more than the sum of their parts? Or are they sub-additive so that one diminishes the effect of the other? Mm. And almost always when you're thinking about that from a mechanistic perspective, the assumption should be that if you think something interesting is happening, that the mechanisms are not going to be identical. Because identical mechanisms would be additivity and just be like giving more of the same molecule. So if I were to, you know dive down into this uh, area of research with psychedelics and and looking at how different substances produce different subjective effects, I would be looking for major minors or minor minors that weren't 5-HT2A agonists. That would be more interesting to me. Um, It's challenging as a basic scientist and as a behavioral pharmacologist who works with rodent models. Um, one, thing's, one thing we're not good at in the laboratory is uh, measuring hallucinations in rodents. <laughs> uh, it's one of the reasons why psychedelic research is mm. lagging behind. In there there isn't like field. a condition place preference where you can put a tie-dye room in a non-tie-dye room and then give a rat a psychedelic and it's like, ooh, I like this because I'm tripping. There isn't like a model for that. No. So our gold standard of even looking at whether something has abuse liability, right, is to see if animals will voluntarily take it. They don't really like to take psychedelics. Um, It's probably a set and setting. I mean, if (laughs) (laughs) it's probably evolutionarily a bad idea for a mouse to trip in a field. Um, (laughs) And, you know, along those lines, you know, most animal models also don't like cannabis. Um, so it's easier to study 
other potentially therapeutic effects of cannabinoids. And, and, you know, we certainly can study depression, anxiety, stress response in animals if that is our end goal. But so one thing that irritated or not irritated me, but, you know, one limitation of this study is the way, one way they were trying to determine if these compounds had 5-HT2A effects is to use a mouse head twitch model, which is a surrogate for hallucinations because hallucinogenic compounds produce head twitch in mice, which is just to say that 5-HT2A agonists produce head twitch. You're not studying the subjective or hallucinogenic properties of these drugs. So you'd have to be a little bit different and more specific in your end point, you know, of of what type of subjective effect that you're looking for. And I, again, I would be more interested if I would, were trying to determine unique effects of certain combinations, I'd be looking for a chemical that might be a little bit different than psilocin. I think that's an awesome point, sir. And especially when you brought back the fundamentals of the entourage effect, which is the reason it's called this is these compounds usually don't have effect on their own. It's when they're in the milieu. And that was like, you know, when, when endocannabinoids, uh, you know, were really exploding in the research scene in the 90s, that was sort of what was describing their activities. Like when we isolate this one endocannabinoid out of the whole bunch, it doesn't seem to do anything. But yet when it's a factor in this mixture or milieu of compounds, it seems to alter or be a factor in altering the effect. And one question I want to have about the the animal model with the head twitch model. Well, I, I can just see the listener now like shaking their head, twitching it a little bit. Like, what does that have to do with the psychedelic effect? One of the criticisms um, that has, you know, kind of made me scratch my head a little bit is about the cortex in rodent models and seeing how the 5-HT2A receptors in the cortex are presently thought to contribute a lot to the psychedelic effects. What would you say to people kind of like critical? Um, you know, is there enough evidence, I guess, to say right now that, you know, rats, mice barely have a cortex. It's not a great model for psychedelic research. Or can we even really say that right now because we, there's not a lot of data looking at you know the, the neuroanatomy mechanisms of psychedelics and rodent models, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we'd have to first decide whether we think rodents can hallucinate. Actually, no, before that, we'd have to decide if they could, could we know it? <laughs> right? I mean, what, <laughs> what you know, a philosophical question for the ages. Uh, Yeah. I mean, my job in my lab is to figure out how to ask rats questions in a way that they can answer me, right? We have a language barrier, you know? So how are you feeling today? You know, they, they can't circle the sad face or the happy, you know, but they can just sit there in the maze and not move. And you're like, Oh, okay. I see. You don't, you don't want to come out and play today. You're not doing too well. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I do think, that there are there are definitely limitations in animal models for certain targets and certain species limitations and and you know especially if you're interested in understanding the hallucinogenic effects um, I feel at this time that there's a limitation to what we could learn from from rodents. Although, Maybe a graduate student model. 
Yeah. Although, Sarah, <laughs> I think that if we could, as you say, know how to know if a rat is tripping on a psychedelic, we would know so much more about how just mammalian central nervous systems work. Like, with such mm-hmm. a fascinating concept, how would we know another creature is hallucinating? I mean, that is such an interesting... I might, I might write up a commentary, try to get it uh, accepted somewhere. That's a fascinating... Um, you know, that, that has given me a little bit of a mind munchie there. <laughs> I think neuroimaging might get closer if we could mm-hmm. uh, determine neural... Pa- you know, we've talked before about neural networks and the effects of these um, psychedelic drugs on neural networks and different patterns of activation and deactivation in the brain. If we map that out in a human and look for correlates in a rodent, we can actually image a rodent brain. Um, That may tell us something. That's another interesting way to communicate with rodents about how they're feeling is to look at those neural signatures in their brain and how that may or may not match up to people. Fascinating. If they're they're safe, right? We could could revisit a Tycho-like scenario, right? Because you're only ever going to get so much from a rodent model, especially with re- with regards to consciousness or hallucination. Um, so this may be like a, a, Sh- a Shulgin experimental regime, right? As long as you're not going to hurt yourself or the subjects, go straight into people. Mm-hmm. Well, we have uh, we have heard some stuff about um, people trying to do just that, Jim, uh, like to more efficiently move into human testing. Um, so I, I think that's something that in, in one format or another, in one jurisdiction or another is, is going to be happening in the next, you know, year. You're going to see uh, commercials. Not only am I the president of the psychedelic company, but I <laughs> dose myself too. <laughs> like, I mean, that's for men, Jacob. Wow. DMT wow. for a hair loss. Beep, 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 beep. Um, <laughs> one trip is all you need for new hair growth. All right. Um, I think that's actually a real patent, but we have to check yeah, with Graham. Yeah, we'll have to give Graham a call. Yeah, it's funny. Excellent. Well, I want to transition as we're nearing the, the, the bend here on HLI time and transition back to cannabis. And it's been a great trip talking about psychedelics, but I want to talk about the synthesis of and related to cannabidiol and its products. Now, this is a hot topic and um, regarding the sort of quality, efficiency, safety, economics of synthesis. Now, everyone uh, gets on their knees and bows down and averts their gaze when Raphael Mishulam walks in a room. It's really weird. I don't know if you've ever seen this because of you know his contributions to science. But what's really kind of wild is his methods have not really changed for decades in terms of how he synthesizes things. Now, this article coming out of the European Journal of Organic Chemistry proposes a novel and practical continuous flow chemical synthesis of CBD and its CBDV and CBD and other analogs. So, Jim, I just want to jump to you as this is like, you know, uh, you eat, sleep and breathe synthesis of compounds. What is continuous flow chemical synthesis? So I'm glad you asked. Um, it is separate from batch manufacturing. So in batch, you'll have a continuous stirred tank. You'll put in 50 kilograms of something. 
add the magic pixie dust, it makes another molecule, you work it up, and then there you go, right? You have a throughput in a very discrete process setup. For continuous flow, one can imagine, you know, in that third tank, you've got molecules coming together. Um, you just have an entire assemblage of them coming together over time. You'll be reacting less molecules at any one time. Um, typically, it'll go through a circuitous flow path. Um, they'll react over a certain at a certain rate, um, and they'll make your product. So you're continuously manufacturing those molecules. And it turns out whenever you do it in a continuous fashion, a lot of these things have a much lower, um, smaller footprint. So you don't need an entire massive manufacturing facility. You can do it in, in something as small as my office. Um, energetics, so you can control the energy much more efficiently than you can in a, in a 600 liter or 4,000 liter tank. So if you have a massive exotherm that's going to blow up your plant in the neighborhood it lives in, um, that's probably not a really good idea, but you can manage small amounts of energy change. And because of that, you can accommodate previously forbidden chemistries. So here, we're constantly trying to work around. Um, if someone wants, or if we have a process that's going to go batch, and we're going to do it at 600 liters, well, you're not going to put you know 200 liters of butyl lithium into your batch reactor. That's an EHS nightmare. Um, but we have a couple flow reactors, you know, the smallest of which has a volume of 2.7 milliliters. You can certainly accommodate that. So whereas, you know, some clever synthetic chemists will have figured out a route using butyl lithium in the 80s, you've got to go, you know, work your way around that chemistry that's not as elegant, um, but that's safe and you can basically accommodate industrially. With flow chemistry, you don't have to work your way around it at all. Um, and this is a perfect example of this. So the example they give um, is a derivative of Machulam's first synthesis of CBD. Yeah, that was, uh, that was my joke in the beginning was reference to that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but please continue. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. So um, he, he makes uh, CBD um, with BF3 and BCM um, continuously in, in, in this article. Um, it, it's still crappy yield. It's not as elegant as it can be. Um, but this reaction goes in super, super fast. Um, there's a similar reaction where you'll make THC, um, but you have to quench it in 10 minutes. You're not going to be able to quench a large batch scale, you know, mm. 600 liters of, of a reactor in 10 minutes. So if you, it's if you have nice. like one flask or one pot, hey, maybe you could do it, right? Like a few liters or something. But if you're talking... You can definitely... Yeah, you can definitely do it on the bench scale, like 10, mil, 10 mils, 100 mils. Um, okay. But on large scale, no way. It all goes to D8, um, and your oh. your reaction's completely screwed. Um, but on flow, you can accommodate that. You have <laughs> Although there's some sectors of the cannabis and hemp industry would be like, that's not a mistake. That's our product. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that too. Jim, when you said that, I was like, oh no, someone's going to hear that. So, it, so Jim, so. I, I, I want... I definitely, I want to, I got a burning question for you about this yeah. research because again, it, it's a bit of a novel concept. Um, it's technical. It, it's focusing on large scale production. And I wanted to get a sense like, so if there's like a, you know, if one of our listeners say works for a cannabis company, like a licensed hemp or cannabis manufacturer, distributor, and, and they're like, and then you have them looking at something like this. Wondering if it's a worthwhile investment to say, we're going to produce cannabinoids and we're looking at this continual flow process, whether it's for FDA trials or for a regulated state, 
But then let's just say you have this other section of the market. And let's just say there's this company called like Bra Science. And like, you know, we're just like their motto is we're just trying to make a quick buck, brah. And they're like, their whole model is boiling a bunch of cannabinoids and acid on their stove and then just packaging it and slapping it. Um, you know, and that's a really like quick and dirty approach to that. And so for the companies, kind of like, you know, they get pitched stuff all the time. And I'm not saying like we're pitching anything, we're just like talking about science, but I see utility in this. But, you know, I guess what I'd like to know is for all the good companies out there that are doing things right, how could something like this give them advantage over the bra science incorporated of the world? Oh, adaptability. You have, you have access to the entire chemical scaffolding landscape, especially in the cannabinoid world. So you could swap out um, catalytic modules, minor change in um, conditions, and you can actually parlay kind of like what I'm, uh, my, I'm envisioning kind of like a whole plant reconstruction. You can have a process stream that goes CBG, CBD, D9, D8, CBN, um, just by diverting over different catalyst beds, different, different, um, different process parameters. So um, adaptability is one, the, the control that you have over it is, is, is another, and um, it accommodates diversity-oriented synthesis. So the previous um, psychedelic paper that we were talking about, this is varying degrees of methylation on a tryptamine, right? Um, mm-hmm. You can also think about varying degrees of oxidation and position of that oxidation on the indole ring, um, where it's a real quick hot swap of the starting material and you can offer um, either commerce or investigators uh, multiple different inroads into the molecules they're interested in, right? We swap out C3 tail for a C5 tail for a C6 tail, and you got the, the Varin series and the Bifferol series, and you can, you can do receptor studies on that or provide it for commerce. So, okay, so let's talk about commerce, and I, we'll, we'll step off the hemp box and let our other guests comment <laughs> in a second, Jim, but I know this is really in your wheelhouse. So I'm going to paraphrase an issue. Um, and if it doesn't work, we could just edit it out. Um, but you know, let's just say I wanted to order some CBDV or as they call it, CBDB, B as in boy, here's another compound. Let's say I want to order a hundred milligrams of this produced through this process. <laughs> is there any way it would cost thousands of dollars or would it be, you know, do you think there would be a savings passed on to the researcher because of this Massive savings, right? So uh, whenever you're talking about compounds like this, starting materials really aren't that much. Most of it's um, in batch production. Most of it's in labor and overhead, Mm. right? A lot of these things have to go chromatographic purification, which takes a large team of chemists, a lot of man hours to push it through through a column. So if you have developed efficient or elegant chemistry that's high yielding, um, then you can go straight through to a crystallization regime and and really bring the price down. And it's greener too. Yeah, when I used to do a lot of the um, radio ligand binding, I mean, the amount we would pay for treated like THC from Perk and Elmer was like insane. I don't know if this could be used to generate radio ligands, but like it was so expensive that I'd rather just have a colleague in another state make it for me and ship it to <laughs> me, even if it would like degrade faster, just because it was like, holy cow, I'm going to go broke just doing experiments over a weekend. Um, it's it's so really... I think there you're actually paying for the tritium and the, the licensure of the people who are handling it. Mm. Um, but for small for small amounts, like we were talking with Sarah before, like if you need 100 milligrams of CBDV, um, I mean, we're, we're looking at production capacities of uh, metric tons a year on these systems that literally wow. are no big, bigger than, than a standard office. Okay. Wow. Wow. 
Um, Nigam, as a chemist, uh, do you believe everything we're talking about? Or are you skeptical? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm I'm on the I'm on the continuous flow train with Jim for sure. Um, so I can uh, share from a little bit different angle. So I became interested in continuous flow processing uh, kind of near the end of my time uh, in the organic chemistry lab during the PhD. Uh, and, and it's just, I, I think it's a natural thing after you've done thousand reactions and a thousand flasks and then scrub those flasks and then and all this stuff, you know, it's um when you start making stuff um, and, and um, it's different on the lab versus the manufacturing setting. So when you start thinking about it, you know, when you get to that part of the translational pathway where it's like, okay, you have a molecule, you have an application, you need to make it, then all the things that Jim was just saying come into play, the efficiency, the space, the, the, the Jay Helmut, you're saying the cost to the, to the end consumer and all that. So anyways, um, yeah, I've uh, been following this stuff closely and um, it's just so, so great to be able to, to learn from Jim and then, uh, you know, shout out to Benuvia Manufacturing, obviously for uh, any, any listeners who are, in the business or doing research who, who, you know, need a metric ton of, you know, <laughs> affordable uh, cannabinoids. I, I think it's um, <laughs> just, just so cool. So, you know, just, I, I'm tracking it all closely and, and excited to see, uh, you know, Jim will have to bring you back and you, and you can tell us uh, some of the details like in, in the, in the near future, you know? Yeah. When it comes to metric tons of, you know, pure cannabinoids, Nigam, I don't know if it's a question of need but uh, maybe utility. But, well, actually, yeah. no, it, it, it is. You've got, you got CBD that's, um, I mean, your, your daily dose is like a gram or two grams, right? And we're talking about pediatric epilepsy indications now, but we are on mm. the cusp of CBD for anxiety. You're talking about replacing all the Xanax scripts for natural CBD. So you're, you're looking at APAP-type quantities wow. that are going to have to be uh, provided to the market. And don't CBD forget about is. that elephant that they were treating at that zoo. Oh. We discussed that several months ago, and my first concern was that's going to be very expensive to dose that elephant with all that CBD. Yeah, I mean, uh, mix it. per kegs <laughs> is going to be through the roof. Uh, yeah. I, I also want to know if how they administer <laughs> to the elephant. Um, because, I mean, do you just do... I mean, I'd be a little nervous about doing an IP injection on an elephant. I don't know about you, Sarah, but... Uh, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> like it's like going under a Volkswagen or something. Um, she's uh, just uh, she'll just send in her uh, first year grad student. No problem. Yeah. Here you go. <laughs> Here's your first project. You know how to you know how to do this, right? Uh, it's a, that's a great point, Jim. You know, I think it's um, you know I was just kind of putting on like my conservative hat there when I, when I said the comment about do you really need metric production because. Everyone is so looking to control potency and amounts of cannabinoids that we have to make sure we have the right controls in process to meet uh, need, um, to meet the sort of evolution of the pharmaceutical market. So I think that that is a really great point that we shouldn't think that uh, we don't need metric ton production of these compounds if we believe half of the science about them. If we really believe that you know, in the FDA's approval and utility of these compounds, um, and their ability to treat conditions, and yeah, we will need literally tons of these compounds to ease human suffering. So I think that's a it's a really important reminder. Um, and so, Sarah, I want to go to you for any 
for your final thoughts about uh, or final thoughts on this article about the novel and practical continuous flow. Um, is this, uh, you know, I'm guessing, you know, you, you source your compounds for all sorts of appropriate channels to do your research. Um, do you get to see or know how they produce it? Do they give you those sorts of details? I understand it comes with a lot of purity, um, you know, MS data and things like that. Uh, but I, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on this article. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've just started to explore different avenues of obtaining my compounds, you know, as the CBD legislation changed, you know, prior to 2018, all of the CBD that I got was through um, the NIDA drug supply program through the government. And so now that I have these newer sources, I'm sort of just starting to explore that. Um, and, you know, as we were chatting about before we officially started the show, you know, there's a major cost issue, um, not as much with CBD, but as with some of the other <laughs> major minor or minor minor uh, phytocannabinoids that I'm interested in studying. Uh, the quotes that I've been given have been astronomical for, you know, dosing um, at the levels that I need to in, in small animal research in the laboratory. Um, yeah, so I'm just sort of at the beginning of learning more about this. So this was a super educational experience for me. Um, I dropped out of chemistry in college. <laughs> so this is not my area of expertise, but obviously really important, um, you know, for me as, as someone who wants to get my hands on this stuff. Um, so one other additional question that I have, again, because, you know, I'm a newbie to all of this, would be the, you know, that question about CBD and this source of generating CBD, is that a Schedule 1 CBD or is it not? You know, Sarah, that's a great question. I assume since it's synthesized from olivetol, as long as the olivetol is obtained from hemp, it's legal, right? <laughs> I mean, who knows? Uh, Jim. So the latest, uh, the yeah. latest guidance we got was for CBD, as long as it's compliant, right? So as long as there are no other controlled substances in there, and meaning mm. is, as long as it's compliant for D9, it's below 0.3, um, then it's not controlled. And so, non-controlled in the sense that the Schedule 1 laws will not be enforced. Correct. So clean CBD is is uh, is did they just did like, they write like that sugar. did they write that on a bar napkin and pass it over to you or is this like an official policy? Yeah, yeah, we're <laughs> that, that's a that's a completely separate talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. There, yeah, but, no, my yeah. understanding is most of the language talks about if it's marijuana derived or if it's hemp derived, and I've not heard as much about. If neither of those two things yeah. are the case, because I've tested synthetic CBD in my laboratory in the past, and I had to have a Schedule One license to hmm. obtain hmm. that synthetic. You know, and again, this was pre two thousand eighteen, pre any discussions about different scheduling for different types of CBD. No, absolutely, and I feel like we're, you know, you have like three DEA agents on a hike, and they come across a pile of like green stuff they're just gonna like lick it look at it and then there's gonna be like it's hemp it's cannabis like you know it just seems like they don't really have a test to say is this hemp derived or not hemp derived 
I mean, you can't look at a CBD molecule, kind of hold it up to the light and be like swirl it in a glass and be like, ah, oh, yes, this is uh, from the Hemp Chateau in the southern region of France. I can taste the the hints of hemp terpenes, and this is clearly a hemp product. Um, you know, because I think you could even produce in the cannabis market a something that would. You know, this is my question too. Is like, let's say you're a cannabis operator, vertically integrated, and you produce a plant that's 0.3% THC or less. Do you have to put it in the track and trace system, right? Or can you just freely sell it without lab testing? Or because it's produced in that facility, do you? You know what I mean? It starts to like, well, does it work so, both ways? You know, there's no, all these it's questions. The prior, it, at least in California, it's the prior. You uh, have to put it well, in the system. Okay, See, good. Like, as long life, as it's, yeah. As long as it's an arbitrary system but, but, that only no, applies no, no, to certain well, individuals, I'm all right, for it. Right, exactly. That's what I was <laughs> going to say. So that's, that's the hard part. And that's why I personally think living in California, being part of the industry there, um, I personally think it is an issue because you have licensed cannabis companies, state licensed companies who pay their taxes, who do all this compliance stuff, who you know put their best foot forward to be part of the legal industry. And then they have this huge burden on them if they grow a plant that is CBD and then if you just have someone with no license or uh, an easier to get license doing hemp and then they can sell it wherever they want and there's no track and trace and there's less compliance. And so it, it is, it is, it is a big issue. So. Yeah. so this this conversation seems to be having some unintended byproducts. So I think uh, we're going to move on. Yeah. We're going to take a break um, and we're going to move on to our game. So so listener that's about it for a research discussion we'll take a short break and come back with our game for this episode at marku and aurora we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. And we're back. Welcome to today's game. Today, our group will be paying for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. Today's game is Name That Drug. So I will summarize a case report about a commonly used substance. Could be a psychedelic, could be a cannabinoid, could be a yet undetermined substance or class of drug. It'll, you know, and I will provide four choices, maybe five choices for our participants here to name that drug. And remember, it's not whether you guess correctly, it's how you think through this game. So um, I would like to say that this game uh, is, I think, very important, and everyone who's ever had roommates might appreciate this. So uh, this case report appeared in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs. So this case report was prepared from material gained from interviews with a 49-year-old woman who we will call CB with her roommate, who we'll call MJ, uh, who witnessed the event. So here's a little background. Uh, CB had uh, contracted Lyme disease in her early 20s and experienced subsequent damage to feet and ankles, causing significant pain, eventually sub 
prescribed morphine for pain relief. And she was basically on continuously for about a decade between 2008 and 2018. And her average use of morphine before the accidental mystery drug exposure event was four to six 10 milligram pills a day with a maximum of eight pills. Therefore, you know, taking 40 to 80 milligrams a day of an opioid, which uh, to me sounds like a whopping dose. So here's the story. In September 2015, CB took um, intranasally or encephalated what she believed was cocaine from a jar that her roommate had, but it was accidentally ingested something else in powder form. This She took basically the equivalent of 550 times the normal recreational dose. She realized she had a problem within 15 minutes and called her roommate for help. She started vomiting within an hour, vomited frequently for the next 12 hours. Her recollection was that she sat up for this experience and mostly blacked out for the first 12 hours, after which she was able to communicate. She felt, quote unquote, pleasantly high for the next 12 hours with infrequent vomiting. The collateral report from the roommate revealed that she sat mostly still in a chair with her eyes either open, closed, rolled back, frothing at the mouth, occasionally vocalizing random words and vomiting frequently. Uh, about 10 hours later, she was able to converse, went to the bathroom, seemed coherent. Her roommate stayed with her in, um, you know, for another 12 hours, after which she appeared to be quote-unquote normal. Here's where it gets even more interesting. CB reported that her foot pain was gone the next day. She discontinued her morphine use and did not use it for five days, did not report any withdrawal symptoms. When her pain returned, she started to take the morphine, but at a lower dose, like one to two pills a day, and started taking the mystery drug three times a week, albeit at very small amounts, and continued this regimen for a couple years until she actually stopped taking all morphine and paid medications. I should believe that her pain was significantly reduced enough that the pain medications were unnecessary. Her discontinuation of morphine, uh, CB reported no typical withdrawal symptoms. Um, she said she did experience increases in anxiety and depression, um, as well as you know, being a bit sensitive to the experience of others. So in summary, I have this case report of a mid-40-year-old woman who intranasally accidentally ingested something at over 500 times the normal recreational dose, which was not fatal, um, was kind of a wild experience over about 30 hours, but produced subsequent positive effects on pain levels and subsequent morphine withdrawal. Um, so, uh, which was really interesting is that she was able to reduce her morphine dose and able to come off morphine eventually without typical withdrawal symptoms. So, my question to you, which of the following crystalline versions or powder versions of the drug was responsible for this what's called an overdose incident. Was it A, a, a psilocybin or psilocybin derivative? Was it B, a cannabinoid? Four, uh, an LSD compound, or sorry, three, an LSD compound, or four, <laughs> DMT. So psilocybin, a cannabinoid, LSD, or DMT. You're also allowed to uh, submit write-in candidates if you don't, if you believe I'm trying to be tricky. So um, I know it's a bit of a wild ride. Someone basically, you know, went into the roommate stash, thought something was cocaine, put out some of it, insufflated it right up the nose, and it turned out to not be that. They realized they had a problem, 
went incoherent for 12 hours, then 12 hours later felt pleasantly high. And then over the next year or two, basically found that they could do without morphine to control their foot pain. So I know it's a, it's a little bit of a squirrely uh, case report, fascinating one. Who would like to, <laughs> Jim? What your thoughts? So we an, we answer now. This isn't for the listeners. We're going to go ahead and spoil it for. Them. Yeah, you know, you can. Uh, this is this is for you. You're playing for the grand prize here. So okay, so she had no mention of visiting the gnomes, so that's not DMT. Mm. Um, the 550 times the therapeutic dose. A recreational kind of dose, yeah. Recreational dose is probably the kind of therapeutic window that only a cannabinoid could fall into. So I'm going to go ahead and say it is a cannabinoid uh, CBD, or if given Sarah's work, um, probably CBG, and that probably help her with her pain. Interesting. And you think that would explain like kind of being incoherent for like 12 hours would be taking a huge whopping dose of a cannabinoid in powder form, right? Like, I mean, uh, well, she only would have gotten a little bit in there. She probably just had a massive wax booger in her nose, and that probably caused <laughs> other pulmonary issues. I can't imagine getting that, that much of a cannabinoid dissolved in a mucosal membrane uh, as a yeah. solid. I, that is a fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I love it. All right, Sarah, I see a big smile on your face. Um, you know, hearing this wild case report. Um, about accidental ingestion of a powdered substance mistaken for another drug. Hearing about this, you know, effects lasting for an entire day, um, and then you know potentially changing the patient's approach to pain medication. You know, does this? Do you think of psilocybin when you hear this? Do you think of a cannabinoid? Do you think of LSD? What about DMT? Well, my right-in answer is kratom. But that's not a choice. <laughs> that's not bad. I actually, that's a, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, that's a underappreciated with the Mitragonia compounds and their effect. You know, absolutely. They could cause nausea. Um, people could pass out from their opioid like effects. And there are definitely reports of a uh, Kratom, like, yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, outside of that, and because I, you know, I'm not the psychedelics expert, especially with crystalline, you know, or, formulations. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a uh, powdered I, form, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, same thing, I'm going, I guess. I'm going cannabinoid, and I hope it's CBD, but it can be any cannabinoid. <laughs> wow. CBD, getting no love, causing boogers <laughs> and lots of side effects. Um, <laughs> Nigam, uh, you know, when you hear this case report, uh, again, do you think this would be typical of a powdered form of psilocybin, a cannabinoid, LSD, or, or DMT? I, um, I'm going to have to recuse. This is the second time this has happened to me on the show. I'm going to have to recuse myself because I know the answer. Oh, oh! if you're so <laughs> smart, then why don't you tell us why you think it is? Do you want, do you want, yeah. Oh, well, um, uh, well, it, it, it's not that I, I, I know that I read the case report. It's wow. not that I, it's not like, oh, I, I'm, I got to recuse myself because I'm so smart. It's like, I, I literally, I read it. So <laughs> all right. I, all right. I know. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So, all right, listener, it's time for the big reveal. So for those of you who, um, thought Jim's comment about DMT and not being DMT, and you thought 
yeah, she didn't. This this case report didn't involve visiting gnomes or alien cities, and that sounded like you know it couldn't be the drug. That's because it wasn't the drug, so it was not DMT. Now, for those of you thinking, wow, uh, powdered form of psilocybin, maybe it could have caused this type of reaction. Well, in this case report, it didn't. So it's not psilocybin either. Now, for those of you who thought, and I even have to admit, it is a very fascinating rationale for a cannabinoid to, you know, accidental ingestion of a powdered form of a cannabinoid. And these, you know, these types of products have been reported in the market. But in this case, it was not a cannabinoid, which means that this case report is about the accidental ingestion of a powdered form of LSD uh, at 550 times above uh, the normal recreational dose. So, um, so this was a, uh, yeah. So again, I know it's a very tricky case report and I think that it could have absolutely happened with a cannabinoid potentially too, in terms of accidental exposure to a large amount, but in terms of LSD, and the severity of this uh, case report, it starts to make a lot more sense that she would have this experience for almost 30 hours um, and basically took approximately 55 milligrams of pure LSD, um, which is a bit above the 100 microgram <laughs> typical dose. And what's fascinating is after this experience, uh, the, she continued to microdose with LSD a couple times a week and basically used that to control foot pain. So... Uh, yeah, so that's the well, that's the conclusion of name <laughs> that drug. Today's correct answer was LSD. So um, I just want to thank you all for uh, playing along and your wonderful and thoughtful responses to today's article. So listener, that's our show. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer and thank you to our podcast cover artists. Um, please be sure to check out more information about them in the uh, show notes. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.